This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Strong PC Hooks. Maria Butina. Food Valhalla. And that giant black sarcophagus. As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But unlike excruciatingly humble podcast hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components. Components like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like... Refining your design. Playtesting. Crowdfunding. And how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, it looks like everyone has got something written on their character sheet. And I hope that it's what the GM asked them to write down instead of, I am never eating that horrible pizza again. (laughs) Although that also could be a character hook, because that's what we're talking about, is story hooks for your character. Robin, you have thoughts on this business. I I will. And first of all, before we continue, you may sense uh, an an audio uh, difference from what you usually get, because this is our annual, we are recording our podcast in our hotel room in Indianapolis before Gen Con, while others are toiling setting up their booths. Uh, Although uh, this year we've got unusually blustery conditions, so I've heard that Booth setup is not not even a horrible torture. But why take that risk? Why take indeed yes. So here we are right. to talk about character hooks. So our character hooks obviously are uh, do not mess with booth setup. But the problem with that character hook is it's inert. It's inert exactly. It's right. a thing we are not doing. Uh, so uh, lots of games, certainly games that I've designed, like Feng Shui, uh, has a melodramatic hook where you uh, supply something about your character that allows you to engage in the sort of a histrionic emotion of Hong Kong action movies, or uh, more recently, the drives in Gumshoe, or the uh, desires uh, and dramatic pulls in Drama System. The kickers in Sorcerer, of course, famously. Yeah, certainly not unique to my designs by any means. And so, uh, Perfected, but not unique. <laughs> and so you'll, you'll often be asked to come up with the cool thing about your character. And so as we are trying to get uh, more player-facing uh, advice onto the show, along with our uh, usual panoply of GM-facing advice, how do you go about creating something uh, that is uh, not just cool and sits on your character sheet and reminds you of a neat thought that you had, but actually comes into play. And so the first tip that I would give you is think of something that demands immediate action. So in the Yellow King role-playing game, in our first Paris section, I asked everybody to, in that game, it's 
uh, in the first sequence in the Paris thing. It's, it's that deuced peculiar business is what it is called. And you describe some sort of supernatural effect that somehow uh, involves Carcosa and the Yellow King. And uh, one of the players came up with something that needed addressing right away. So uh, Sue Davis, who's one of my players, decided that her character's uh, man, her, her lover, had disappeared. And not only uh, was he gone, but so was his house. Woo! And that is so, deuced peculiar. It is deuced peculiar. And other people had uh, uh, cool things as well. And it's, it would, would have been a kind of a traffic jam if everybody had come up with an idea that strong. Right, that needed immediate attention. Because right. then everyone's like, well, we'll meet here after our problems are solved. <laughs> exactly. We're going to split up the party in six right away <laughs> yep. in the very first session. So that's not cool either. But um, that uh, gave us... and. Here's the secret players. Uh, most players will come up with something that's a little more modest than that or, or you know, not... Or backgroundy. Or ba- backgroundy. So uh, other examples from the same group of players were uh, I saw a peculiar uh, lion-headed gargoyle crawling on the wall. Well, that's also useful to the gym because when can't you throw in a Exactly, right. I mean, they're, they're everywhere you want to be, or they should be. You right. should want to be where they everywhere are. Right. Oh, or another player had I uh, walked into the church and heard mysterious organ music playing, which is weird because there was no organist. Right. Um, and there and there can be the, sort of the standard character hooks, which are just strong desires that your character wants to accomplish. It's like, I want to kill the six-fingered man, or I want to find my sister, or I want to have this thing that can concretely happen in-game that clues can be left towards. And that's a very, very standard character hook, which does not make it a bad character hook because it invites proaction by you. You've already said, yes, if you leave a breadcrumb, I will go after it. And it's something the GM can pretty much slot in regardless of what the overarching plot is, because whether it's Carcosa or Giant Spiders or the Templars, any one of them could have nabbed their their sister. So it's just a, a, a good, solid, all-purpose omni-hook without having the cool immediacy of a vanishing house. Right. Uh, but the next thing you can do is uh, you can sort of have it both ways. Uh, is you can come up with the uh, you know the missing sister uh, as a hook, but also uh, if no one else around the table has come up with something that demands e- immediate action, you can then have in the back of your mind what your immediate action uh, would be. So uh, if you have the the sort of session where the GM is kind of waiting for you to think up the things that you will do, which is, of course, implicit kind of in this. In some cases, the, you know, your Feng Shui campaign may well begin with, you know, you are all on an airplane and it is going down and there are eaters of the lotus sorcerers uh, in the uh, economy class complaining about the legroom and attacking people. So with that, you, you don't need to uh, address the fact that your uh, sister's missing right away. Um but if it's the, oh, well, you're all hanging around the noodle shop together, you can then come to the first session with the idea. If nobody else is throwing anything into the bin, you can say, well, I heard a rumor that my uh, sister was seen last night in Shimsat Shoy. Let's go down to the, to the red light district where uh, somebody said they saw my sister. And so that can then, uh, instead of waiting for the GM to throw you a ball, you're throwing the ball into the, the middle of the table. The other thing, the other sort of uh, character you can have, uh, besides the one that is something that you want, is something that the bad guy wants that concerns you, right? You're like, uh, my character hook is that I'm the only person who's seen 
the villain's face. The faceless uh, uh, haunter, I've seen his face. Right. So he's always going to be coming after me to try and rip my own face off so that I don't right. get ideas. Uh, my it's favorite facelet haunter right on his Right cards. on his business cards. My favorite ever example of that was my player, Josh, who in an unknown armies campaign that he was joining kind of in the middle, and so I think he was feeling a little worried that he'd be left out, says, I want to play a character who's under his grandfather's blood curse. Uh, is that all right? <laughs> and the answer... Uh, teacher, uh, I would like to give you an apple. Uh, but the answer, listeners, like is yes, that was all right. <laughs> um, uh, I know everyone was on tenterhooks. Yeah, wondering whether that was right. acceptable or not. And, of course, that drove a lot of great story because all kind of weird, creepy stuff could be happening to him. He's like, what's going on? My, I, the character, don't know what's going on. And he would have a call to action to investigate this blood curse business. And then, because it was his family, he couldn't like just say, well... I'm getting away from it because there is no getting away from that. Yep, that's that's how blood curses work. Right. And and so that's the sort of thing you can say, I'm going to hook myself into the antagonist or the story or the setting in a way, and then the GM, some of the onus of action is on the GM, but the onus of action is by and large generally on the GM for the NPCs. And what that is, is it instead of saying, oh, the villain is attacking the school bus full of adorable orphans, it's like, oh, okay, the villain's literally attacking your face. And that gives you an immediate reason to be on the scene and uh, involved in the storyline, as opposed to call the cops. Yeah. And some players, I think the reason they don't come up with more active hooks is just that they're afraid of treading on the GM's toes. And so as GMs, we're here to say, uh, we can work with that. (laughs) Right. We we can... uh, So, uh, for example, in in the Yellow King game, my uh, vague intention for the first... Session, in addition to having the characters introduce each other and, and, uh, the premise was that they already knew each other. This was one of those, you all meet up in a weird situation and by the end you're player characters, but that rather you're a group of people who already know each other and are friends and have a reason to hang out and do things together. Uh, but what I wanted to do for my particular group was to introduce them to a patron who would help them out in their uh, efforts against Carcosa and, you know, on a slow night would give them a mission. Right. Uh, and that's something that is not imposed as part of the Yellow King, but is offered as an option depending on your kind of group. And my group, uh, I think, does a little better if they have, at least as a backup, some sort of somebody to sort of point them somewhere. And so my desire was to find whoever that was. And the Yellow King book gives you, uh, you know, half a dozen or more possible options of who that could be, but I wound up inventing somebody else completely different than I'd had in mind as I went along because that then fed into the plot line of looking for Henri Chaval. Uh, and uh, because Yellow King then repeats through three other settings slash reality slash timelines, uh, Henri Chaval uh, showing up at the beginning of uh, a session then became a recurring theme. So in uh, the third uh, setting aftermath, the post-revolutionary one, uh, Hank Knight... Uh, had been discovered murdered, uh, and so it's an echo of the same thing. So the, in uh, this instance, the player, by uh, bringing that to the fore, created something that could reverberate through the different sessions. But even if you just come up with something very simple and straightforward that you know gets you uh, the GM to do something at the beginning, that's great. So it could be; it doesn't have to be something overarching. Even it could just be uh, thugs roughed me up last night. I'm going to get my friends together and convince them 
to go and uh, return the favor. So uh, it's like you're saying, hey, Jim, would you like to demonstrate the combat system <laughs> in a relatively low-stakes manner and see where that goes? So it doesn't have to be anything uh, ginormous. It just It's about action. It's about something that can happen. Uh, you know, what do you do? The gargoyle thing could, for example, be activated by there's a gargoyle, a little baby gargoyle in my studio, and I put a box over him, and I yeah. put a chair on the box and some bricks on top of the chair. Hey, guys. <laughs> Maybe we should yeah. find out what makes we, this walk around. Yeah, we should have some brioche, and then I'd like to get your assistance with this thing. So it doesn't, if you're afraid of imposing too much on the GM, you can come up with something relatively small bore that's still, hey, look what we're doing, if not tonight, at the beginning of tonight. Yeah, you can, um, the key to a hook, right, is that it hooks into something else, right? It's not just your character, a character hook that is like, I have a fanatical hatred of cranberries. That's not a hook, that's a quirk. Yes. That just means that the GM puts cranberries in the room and you, like, have minus two to your composure. Yeah, the GM's like, I gotta make the cranberry monster. Yeah. But a hook connects your character to some part of the setting. And right. that can be the end. The bad guy can be another NPC who has uh, some connection to the story. It can be some other institution in the story. Like, my hook is that I'm sworn to defend the temple of um, uh, uh, of Zeus with my life. Right. And it's like, great. Now, anytime I need you to come a-running, I just send stuff after the temple of Zeus. And you have to come help them. And maybe you don't like the fact that you swore to protect Zeus, and it's like Zeus. Really, I've got a furniture <laughs> business I'm trying to start. And who um, hasn't had a youthful pledge to <laughs> Zeus? Zeus exactly. Come to regret. Come to regret later. Many, many nymphs yes. have had that happen. Uh, I don't know if you can regret things once you're a constellation and/or tree. <laughs> Not sure how that works out. I think trees like regret autumn every year. They, no, maybe they summer. do. Maybe they're just happy. Maybe it's just like finally get rid of these leaves. Yeah, just but, some time for myself. But, but we digress. Do we really? Yeah, we do. Is that what we do? Yeah. Um, and so the notion is, you don't have to be hooked into the bad guy. You don't have to be hooked into anything scary per se. You may be saying, "Well, I don't know about all this horror gaming," uh, and you may not be as eager to put your head into the blood curse bag as young Josh was, but. Hooking yourself into some other part of the setting is also a favor to the GM right. because it also sends the signal to the GM, this is an interesting part of the setting to me as opposed to just boring blah, blah background. If you're like, ah, Temple of Zeus, I wonder what that's doing in Cleveland, then you that drives the story in a way and right. it shapes it. Uh, you collaborating kind of with the GM does... Even if it's a pre-written setting and he's not departing from it by a minimum, your actions are sending a spotlight and putting that part into high relief. Right. And you may not have a sense of how responsive your GM is to your creating things in, in their setting. Right. Um, but any, you know, GM, uh, cool enough to listen to this podcast, at least. Um, well, then, you know, if, if you create a Temple of Zeus the, and they've the got... no true GM fallacy. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, if you say Temple of Zeus and in, in, in you're playing, you know, vampires in Pittsburgh or wherever it right. is, and they that's not in the book, um, they will then go, oh, well, there isn't a Temple of Zeus per se, but there is, you know, a Grove of Persephone or whatever right, it yeah. is, and they can work with you... To, to you know, tie you into the setting, yeah. if there's some element that was important that you have sort of sidelighted by right. accident. Right? right. So don't be shy about making a bold move because the GM can then adjust whatever that right. is and and bring that back in line with, with what their plans are. Um, and the trick, again, to just to reiterate as we close out this segment, is always make sure that it's a positive move 
uh, instead of a, a thing that you won't do, right? It's like, I will never uh, betray my loyalty to Zeus. Well, that can sort of, the GM can go, okay, well, obviously somebody's got to come around and test your loyalty to Zeus, toot sweet. Uh, but it's much easier if you have uh, an active thing that it's like, you know, I broke my vow to Zeus and now I wish to get back in his good graces. Right. That's an active thing that you can choose to go and do something about rather than waiting for the GM to go, okay, well, I, okay, your plot lever is going to come over and meet with you. You can, go, you know, go and find your plot lever. Right. And then move into the setting and, and get to know it better, which is, I suppose, the whole point of the act, of the, of the exercise, at least in this early hooky stage. Eventually there's more stuff we'll build out, but we're out of time to talk about that right. stuff. And uh, since we came to the whole point, it's time to move through this exciting commercial to whatever lies on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and the background check and the uh, hovering presence of a... Uh, young redhead with a uh, Putin phone case tells us we've once more entered an oh-so-topical segment of the Tradecraft Hut. Well, once again, we're trying to get out of today's news, but uh, the Tradecraft Hut keeps pulling us back in. So, of course, we have to talk about the story of Maria Butina, who was uh, recently uh, arrested by uh, U.S. federal authorities for acting as an unregistered foreign agent, uh, which, if you're writing headlines... Uh, translates into she was a spy uh, and do we need to get into the semantics? I think we do because it's an important segment of the Tradecraft Hut. Um, if you're looking for cute red-headed Russian spies, that's what Anna Chapman was. She was an illegal, as they call them. She was like Carrie Russell in uh, The Americans. She was an illegal. She was present, not under diplomatic cover, uh, doing work for, uh, I think it was the F SVR, without being a declared Russian embassy agent literally, in America, and that's what's called in Russian parlance an illegal, and when you catch them, you arrest them and swap them out for American spies. We don't run illegals in Russia 
um, because the CIA is really terrible at that, and they usually uh, swap people out for Russians who we have convinced to spy for us, as opposed to sending our guys into Russia to wander around. Also, it was a great way to get killed back in the old Cold War, and it's probably not a terrible way to do it now. So she had a, a short but meteoric career as a spy um, that almost certainly didn't kill uh, nearly as many people as uh, Carrie Russell, but she was a proper spy Anna Butina, as far as we know, and she may also have been spying in addition to being a lobbyist. She was doing a whole bunch of things. She, so she, she had a busy to. social calendar. Yeah, there is there, no doubt about that. There's a lot of bullet points in her job description. Yeah. Um, she uh, was acting as basically a lobbyist, where she was trying to make connections with influential American figures, by and large, in the right side of the political spectrum. Possibly because that's who was running the country by the time she sort of got her career up and going. But uh, she did see uh, the uh, writing on the wall or the possibilities. Or maybe she just uh, knows the eight-year cycle of American presidential politics. But uh, as early as 2014, she was cozying up to a Republican operative named Paul Erickson. And I use cozying up in the medical sense of the term. <laughs> um, and was close enough to him to be saying... Uh, you know who doesn't like Democrats? The NRA. Maybe we should pour some money in and see what happens. People like money. Uh, at some point during her sort of career, she was sort of the right-hand woman of a Russian central bank figure and senator and weirdo guy. I think you probably have. Right. Uh, so so Al- Alexander Torshin uh, is an oligarch who's, uh, you know, uh, Putin has him on speed dial. Right, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Like you do. If you knew an oligarch, you'd have him on speed dial. He, he does have olig- oligarchs. Right. Uh, I don't know whether like he's in the top ten friends, where there's like free texting or not, but he's definitely, right. you know, uh, Russia is a uh, command structure in that way, that mm-hmm. whoever you are, you know, when Putin calls, mm-hmm. it's like you... Pick up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you cannot ghost on Putin, or you will ghost on Putin. Right. That, I think, is the lesson. But uh, Alexander Torshin, uh, like Maria Butina, does not seem to have been a, a reluctant uh, <laughs> actor at all. No, no. I mean, uh, the oligarch's going to oligarch. He definitely wanted to expand his own personal empire, regardless of what else is going on. So even Synergies. even before the uh, uh, the election, he was oiling up to like treasury officials and guys in the Federal Reserve, other people in government, because he wanted uh, probably to be taken off the sanctions list. I think was he on the sanctions list then? Or his no, buddy he, was on the sanctions list. Because he's been bopping around right. here. He's, so there was another guy that was on the sanctions list that he's connected up to. Yes. Deripaska, I think, isn't it? Okay. Or, yeah. yeah. He uh, hires Anna Butina as his uh, Girl Friday, I guess, is what she would be. Yeah. Um, she was an entrepreneur in Moscow, which is, uh, if you whether you want to be or not, if you're an entrepreneur in Moscow, you meet oligarchs uh, because you meet their employees, the mob, and uh, that's how that works. Uh, so he plucked her out of thousands and made her his uh, uh, girl Friday and then hooked her up with Paul Erickson or perhaps she hooked up because Paul Erickson is just that darn uh, attractive. I, I think the evidence suggests uh, A. <laughs> a? Okay. We know uh, from her uh, from the testimony that's uh, available in the uh, publicly available uh, charging papers that, in fact, she uh, was complaining about the arrangement, <laughs> uh, didn't appreciate uh, this particular uh, 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 inter- uh, international comedy. <laughs> yes, exactly. So right. uh, she complained about having to live with him and, in fact, uh, you know, here's a little bit of shame on him. She made him do her homework. Oh, 
Well, uh, again, uh, you know, I'm sure he thought it was a fair exchange, but this is not the domestic arrangements hut. You know, we can't speak to that one or the other. And he was not the only person who was uh, offered that line of inducement. Someone else, uh, we don't know who was offered uh, sex in exchange for connection to a uh, so far unnamed right leaning uh, political organization. So that's obviously part of a long tradition of uh, Soviet and now uh, Russian spying that. uh, we in the West uh, tend to be a little too squeamish. Right. Uh, uh, our, our honey trap, again, it's not that the CIA or MI6 don't do that. It's that they use cutouts and contractors to do it. So if the CIA needed someone honey trapped, they've got, I am a thousand percent sure, their honeypot speed dial that they call and they say, hey, uh, Magda or, you know, whoever, uh, interested in earning a couple of couple of grand, we need this guy honey potted, and she'd say, "Sure, anything for old buddies at the CIA. Let me pass right. you in for Thursday." And that's how it works. But it's not an American. But it's not an CIA American who does agent. it because that leads to ugly questions in Congress and a lot of snarky headlines on Fox. So the uh, the larger point we were making at the beginning of this is that Anna Butina is so far been engaged in lobbying. Broadly speaking, which you're not allowed to do without signing up, with just signing up and saying I am actually uh, engaged in lobbying and I'm a Russian or whatever foreigner you are, you can't do it if you're British too. But uh, the undeclared foreign agents is just to make sure that I guess everyone knows where the checks go. I'm not sure how it. What, I think there's an accountability thing. <laughs> Some minor that's a quaint nod idea now, to transparency. Yeah, uh, and, and so th- that is currently the only thing that she is charged with now. You and I and everyone else who's ever seen a cop show knows that you make the case you can make stick now while you dig around for the big thing. So if it turns out she was, in fact, oiling around on behest of the uh, SVR, then that's going to come out in the wash. And they certainly are not shy to indict people uh, in, in, in these sorts of cases because even if the indictment is flimsy, it makes a great lever to pull on the Russians because a lot of times... Uh, and not in this case uh, necessarily, but a lot of times you have someone who you suspect is an agent, you can't prove they're a spy, and you're like, if we indict them as a spy, we can get our guy you know, released from Russian jail or whatever it happens to be. And the Russians do the same thing to us, and they used to do it to tourists uh, because sometimes they ran out of CIA guys who walked into their traps somehow. They overhunted is what right. it was. They, they, they quote us to make. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and so we've been looking at ways in which this is similar to uh, previous uh, Soviet espionage, but also there's some ways that are different. Uh, first of all, she's cooperating. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, is this, uh, is there a precedent for that? I mean, defectors cooperate right. a lot of times um, because that's the whole point of being a defector. And you sometimes you would get individual sort of low-level people who would flip but it was usually it was never like old school KGB. You 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 stay silent. You don't uh, you don't flip on the KGB. Uh, well, I, that, that's the distributed postmodern art chart coming to bite them. Exactly. And and again, this is why you know because of her cooperation is what makes me think that she's probably just the henchman of this oligarch. And the oligarch is certainly not above doing contract work for the SVR himself because. Oligarchs, the Russian mob, and the KGB that was are three legs of a stool right. in Russia, with Putin sitting on top of the stool for now. And so you say definitely the guy's an oligarch, which by almost for sure means he's mobbed up, and therefore the odds are he has to do stuff if the SVR wants him to. And whether that involves making unsavory arrangements with his personal assistants 
or whether he's doing that on his own recognizance, because as an oligarch, it's handy to have a hook in the uh, pie of whoever's going to be appointing a bunch of, I don't know, customs officials or something. Right. Well, one of the things that strikes me is it's almost like uh, they're... Uh, it reminds me of a small hobby game company in a way, right. in that, that you know he's hired this efficient person who then winds up doing a whole bunch of different things and uh, is very entrepreneurial and making connections. And it's in some ways she sort of feels like uh, you know how there's this tight scene, and then mm-hmm. someone really sort of extroverted comes out of nowhere and tries to jump in. And uh, uh, so, for example, Torsion sent her to warn the former head of AIG, who uh, very cleverly invested in a Russian bank. Uh, perhaps don't do that. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so she was the one who went to uh, this guy, uh, Hank Greenberg, and said, you know, you know all that money you put in the Russian bank? Well, it's going to all go under uh, because, of course, they're the Russians who own the bank are stripping it. Are looting it, yeah. in, As in Goodfellas when they right. bust up their r- restaurant. Um, and But she, she's the one who gets sent to go to tell him, oh, you better put some more money in before it all... Yeah. Goes bust, and um, she's going to school at the American University. Whereas uh, alluded to earlier, she's got a shirtless Putin on the back of her phone case, and three different fellow students reported to her to the authorities as a likely spy. So <laughs> there's also this very 2018 thing of everybody just doing everything blatantly out in plain sight. And then one of the one of the things about the case that sort of strikes me is she's also maybe one of those people who's got you know. She's got a hammer, so everything's a nail to her. Because she was starting a gun rights movement in Moscow. Would yes, you live- yes, we have to now, get into that. Now, on the one hand, if she is a uh, SVR agent who's intended to be deep cover, that would make a great cover, right? Because it's like, oh, look at that. She's a dissident, and she's cool and fun, and she likes guns, and America likes guns, and what a great way to put her into the NRA. But the other possibility is, if you're a Russian, and I've met European gun nuts, and they are lonely people. (laughs) Uh, They're so happy to talk to an American, it is not even funny. (laughs) Especially an Oklahoman American. And so the... um, uh, and so, if she was legitimately... Can we talk calibers now? Exactly. Oh, thank you. And if she was legitimately a, a gun fondler, a gun uh, enthusiast, uh, a gun rights activist, then her natural assumption would be, well, once I meet American NRA, then I'm in the big leagues. And anything they can do anything, right? That that would be the assumption that she would have. That, that's a charming narrative. That is a charming narrative. But I'm going to go with A, because in fact... There was an entire NRA-style gun rights conference in Moscow to which the leading lights of the NRA and Associated People were all invited Mm -hmm. to go to this Russian gun rights conference. Headline, there's no gun rights in Russia. There's no desire to have gun rights in Russia. But... I think maybe one or two people in Russia kind of wish they had guns. Right, but the the people who are in charge don't want people who aren't them to have don't, guns. They don't want to hold conferences about it. They don't want to hold. But there was a lavish conference held, so right. one suspects that uh, uh, this was all part of the big arrangement. So this this would be sort of the the new. Uh, centuries version when they used to have the lavish peace conferences. Yes. Right? And they'd have the one tame poet who would write read a poem about Afghanistan and it was like, look how brave he was to be here at the government sanctioned yes. conference. It's not uh, a peace conference, it's the Kalishnikov <laughs> conference. It's, it's a gun conference. Yes. But either way, it's uh, uh, the useful idiots is such a useful phrase. I mean, whatever else Lenin may or may not have accomplished, he gave us that. Uh, so. <laughs> Yes, and uh, and so uh, you think they just thought the uh, idiots they targeted were useful due to the election cycle, or were there other qualities that made them appealing? I mean, here's the thing, right? If you are 
very, very high up in the NRA, just like any other big uh, money pressure group in America, you have, speaking of speed dials, you've got a lot of congressmen and senators and regulators on speed dial because that's literally your job. So, yeah, if the Russians can have guys like that, even just on the very surface level of, I owe you a favor for that right. thing that we did in Grand Rapids, then that's good. That That's all the good, because they want those guys on speed dial. Every foreign government would like to have senators on speed dial. Frankly, our government sometimes would like to have senators on speed dial. Right. But the... Um, Keep uh, bump stocks legal, and by the way, Crimea belongs to and, Russia. And, by, and in other news, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but it's not even necessarily going to be that. It's going to be much more in the weeds about importing things, and uh, uh, it's not even going to be about foreign policy half the time. On this level, it's going to be about banking policy, because... These guys have got billions and billions and billions of dollars piled up, and America is a great investment opportunity that a lot of them are legally forbidden to invest in. And just having one guy dropped off the sanctions list, that could probably start a whole rota of people saying, oh, no, this is all Yuri's money. He's just holding it for me. <laughs> so any little tiny thing on the, on the margins of that level of, uh, of, of banking law or uh, any kind of, uh, you know, just lightening up on a sanction or importing uh, back and forth. Again, uh, not to make it all about guns, but they kind of made it all about guns when they decided to do it this way. Obviously, who owns the Kalashnikov factory? The Russian state, right? Who wouldn't love to be able to export AKs to America legally? I know literally thousands of people who would want one, and I don't know that many people, but... <laughs> But, I mean, if you could legally export AKs to America, that would be great. Everyone would love that. Um, the Russian government would really love that because that's right. hard currency. And uh, so it's, it's this level of thing that is bonus. And then if you wind up lucking into a situation where the guy that you've been uh, leaning on for these favors is also able to lean on the president, well, great, right? Right. And, and the big kahuna here is there's an allegation that has obviously not been proven at this point mm-hmm. that a big chunk of dark money went from Russia through the NRA into the Trump campaign. Right. And if you are the prosecutors getting here to cooperate, this is the thing that you want to nail down. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that happened with the Chinese in 96, where they were uh, funneling money into the Clinton campaign. And there you go. Clinton won, so everyone was like, well, there you go, too bad. And it's not like anyone thought Bob Dole had a chance in hell. But the, the same basic operational system is that you fund someone who can plausibly be thought of as a donor. And that's how, you know, uh, shadow money in politics has worked forever. Whether you are the Russian government or a, a crime boss in America or just a guy who maxed out his contributions and still wants to give. Right. Uh, well, uh, we've moved uh, far beyond uh, uh, one redhead. Uh, so I think it's time. <laughs> Even two redheads. Uh, yes, <laughs> we have cited several. It's time to uh, head uh, through this commercial out of top secret territory into uh, something uh, hopefully completely different. Ken, 
What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast free of infiltration alongside such Patreon backers as... Daniel Callahan. Diane Donaldson. The Esoteric Order of Role Players. Garrett Fitzgerald. And John Buckley. The delicious aromas wafting toward us, the sound of skittering butter in the pan, and the crunch... Of Doritos again. What the hell are they doing here? Welcome <laughs> us. Doritos do not belong. They do not in belong this in this all. segment at all. That was a mistake. Right, because this segment, this segment, if, I, f- may, if I may hop in due to your segue, feel free. It's about food Valhalla. It's about the foods that we can no longer have. Because it's we, the food hut. Because of the food hut. Right. Uh, and uh, we are today reminiscing about, uh, with a sense of certain sadness and melancholy, everybody has foods that for whatever reason they can't have anymore. Doritos are not among them. No. Because they're in the other room in the hotel. Right. So, we literally can't have them. Yeah, we can't have Doritos. Uh, but Ken, so since I've jumped into your intro, I'll yeah. throw it back to you. Please. What, what do you think of Why not? when you think of a, a great food that you loved that, is, that no longer exists in this reality? A lot of times it's it's just about it's about restaurants, right? And uh, I've eaten at Nobu in Las Vegas when Nobu... Matsu, he wasn't there that day, but he, you know, had built the menu and trained the chefs. And A, I'm probably not going to get to eat at Nobu again. I'm not even sure Nobu's still open in Las Vegas. There are still Nobus around the world. But Right. I guess one category of food you'll never have again is someone else was paying. <laughs> someone else is paying. Which yes. is the nature of the freelancer's life. But um, uh, but that was uh, that was memorable to me though also and, and like a lot of restaurants the the thing that I remember is not just the food Valhalla but the James Wallace trying uh, Toro for the first time Valhalla which you can never have again because he knows what it is now and right. won't uh, let his uh, icy British Reserve uh, fall to a million pieces right the way we're moving yeah so we're moving now into the the sort of perfect evening with the perfect people and that feeling of camaraderie mm-hmm. where and sometimes you will be. Let's all go back next year with all the same people mm-hmm. in the same place, and maybe it'll be great again. Uh, there's a or differently great, or at differently least. great, uh, and you know certainly there's uh, we have a new old favorite uh, for the Pelgrane crew. There's a, a Ethiopian place that is uh, sadly far from the convention center. Yeah, uh, that is continues to pay off and be a delightful evening every time. But sometimes you will go back to the next place and it's like, oh well. Mm. It's just not quite there, right? Which is not a, the thing. Which is a different form of sadness, I guess. Right. A, a lesson in you know not repeating 
uh, old things. Uh, and then there's other, I mean, just sort of on the more, on the, not the opposite of Nobu, but maybe the other end of the greatness cone, there is a, a meal that neither uh, Sheila nor I ever ate as children, but has somehow magically become our childhood comfort food. <laughs> I have what I may say is a absolute killer uh, pork schnitzel uh, recipe. Pork breaded in panko, sage and uh, cumin and uh, all manner of good things in the in the breading. And then Sheila would, to go along with it, make her mashed potatoes, which were magnificent. Uh, and still are magnificent if she ever makes them, which she doesn't, because uh, what with one thing and another, carbohydrates have to be shown the door, uh, at least to the extent possible. The occasional Dorito notwithstanding. Right. Um, and when a meal like that is a celebration of the carbohydrate, you just can't have it anymore. That's the category, the thing that you could have but ought not ought to. Ought not to. And, right. uh, but, uh, but I gotta tell you, Sheila's mashed potatoes are, in the list of reasons to be married to Sheila, they're on the first page. And the font yes. is not, it's not a, it's not a big font. Right. Um, and there's also the category of the, the things that you loved as, as a kid or as a, a young person, uh, and, would if it could be magically teleported in front of you, would you like it now? So uh, when I was a, in, in the late teens in uh, the small city of really Ontario that I grew up in, uh, the restaurant that uh, my gang and I always went to was an, an Italian place. And, uh, you know, don't imagine a sophisticated Italian restaurant in it really in the 1980s. It was called Queens. But the thing that I loved there... Uh, <laughs> That's, I love it. That's... Oh, that's too perfect. Yeah, uh, and uh, that tells you everything. Um, and the thing that I loved there was not uh, an Italian dish per se, although there are other things that they did that I liked, but their ribs. Their barbecue ribs, not normally something you would look for on the uh, menu of an Italian place. I would not. Not um, even one named Queens. Exactly. Uh, and I just love those. I love the, uh, the sauce, and that uh, was great, and I still, you know, I can conjure up. The, the mouthfeel of that. The other thing great about Queens is uh, if you uh, were in your late teens and ordered a drink with dinner, they didn't card you. So that yes. was also that's also two magical things. Well, that that is authentically Italian. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, if, if someone put Queens ribs in front of me now, would they rocket me back to my salad days? Would I love them or be oh oh how disappointing I am to myself? Right. In the world of ribs, I don't know that I could never have this again, because for all I know, Bob's Ribs in Ada, Oklahoma, is still there and still ticking along. Queens is probably still serving out uh, uh, fine quality beverages to underage Canadians to this day. But uh, the rib place in Ada, Oklahoma, is, in, in local lore, was the reason that Ada has an airport, is because all the oil men in Oklahoma wanted to fly to Bob's to get ribs and then fly back to the oil field. Um, if, if you have some oil, right, you and can the, make that happen. And the, and, the, and the trick to Bob's was always to uh, go right before the health department closed them down. <laughs> because uh, the... Uh, they the, extra tasty microbes. Yeah, because the, um, uh, the, the fat from the barbecue would, uh, would uh, be volatilized by the heat and then stick in the chimney of the smoker. And so... Towards the later part of any given Bob's cycle, the ribs would be being smoked while 
uh, newly etherized fat would be raining down upon them. So there's one of those little adjustable thermometer things to show you the progress <laughs> of the chimney. When you- I, I, I'm not. I'm, you, you just have to know. You have to say, well, they were they were shut down by the health department <laughs> eight months ago. You have to have access. They probably built up of information requests. You just ask around. Yeah, people around. would know. Yeah, and and so it's oh yeah, they probably built up that nice coating of congealed fat on this on the roof of the smoker. And of course, when you say it as a grown up, mm, congealed fat, <laughs> you're thinking. Why, why did I do that? Yeah. But again, as a college student, as an impecunious college student, right. there was literally nothing better in the My world. My life experience of food poisoning was <laughs> but, very, rather limited. But and, see, the thing is, it's it's an, it's like our buddy Mithridates, because yes. I ate Bob's all the you, time. You immunized yourself. I, I'd been immunized to anything bad that could happen to Bob's, because I believe, personally, it was the 21 drinks on my 21st birthday that caused... The bad reaction, not the Bob's ribs. <laughs> That's your story. And <laughs> That's I think my story. I'll stick to and it I'm as well. To it. Um, other examples of you know restaurants that are gone, uh, and I think uh, it's telling that a lot of this is about comfort food, right? It's uh, yeah. It's not about you know truffle risotto. We're talking. It's about uh, barbecue and ribs and. I mean, to, to some extent, because I think you and I are still in our truffle risotto years. Yes. Right. I mean. Uh, for example, uh, I went to um, uh, St. John's Market in Smithfield, again with James Wallace, who, by the way, will figure in my food Valhalla diary at the end of my life if I ever write such a thing. He, There's going to be a James Wallace freaking chapter. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I believe it is possible that I could go to St. John's again. I, I don't think that that's out of the world of, of, of possibility. I think our truffle risotto days... Are, are still we can we can see those sort of sparkling right. like gems. Whereas going back to Ada or Aurelia to enjoy really bad choices in barbecue, maybe that's not going to ever happen again. Uh, well, something definitely won't happen again. Is you know, speaking of comfort foods, is the Reuben sandwich mm. at Murray's, uh, which is a uh, sort of an was an old school side of big dinery place at the bottom of a, a hotel back when a big old. Old school deli would be at the bottom of a, a major hotel, mm-hmm. and uh, every time, you know, a, a Reuben and I've been ordering Reubens ever since. No one ever comes close to Murray's. There was one place I found in Toronto that, oh wait, this might be the Reuben. Went back a second time. It was a soggy, horrible mess. Yeah, uh, but the Murray's Reuben always delivered. But there's no more. There's uh, no more Murray's. No more Murray's. Just like the, uh, you know, the coconut sticky rice at Vanifa. Well, Vanifa closed and. Uh, you know, that's, that's gone forever. I had a, I had a, uh, Malaysian restaurant. I didn't have it, but maybe I had it. Maybe I was the only person who had it because there was never very crowded. Well, you, you shouldn't have let it go. To I business. should not. It was irresponsible with yeah, I, I, I feel terrible. It was called Penang and it was in Chinatown in Chicago and they had a dessert. I mean, all the meals were great. They had terrific, terrific food, uh, a big variety of stuff because Malaysian is like this crossroads of Chinese and Indonesian and, uh, everyone has sushi so they have sushi. It was just a great, great um, uh, a mix of, of, of food. But they had a dessert, which is called pulut hitam, which I don't know if you've ever had. It's this black uh, rice uh, with sweet um, uh, 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 beans or something. That was the very thing I was just lamenting. Exactly. Yes. Right, yeah. So the, the, the pulut hitam at Penang was the best pulut hitam I've ever had. I've had it other places, and it's good. I mean, it's a great dish. I recommend it unreservedly. But the Penang was the best one. And Penang burned down. Uh, I think maybe because in Chicago when a restaurant burns down, sometimes it's because they want to get the insurance money. Just maybe that, that even happens in Toronto. That even happens in Toronto. Yeah. I'm shocked and appalled. I, I know it's it's I unbelievable can't believe that, it. that, that uh, disputed uh, the sales have fallen from my eyes now. Right. Um, 
I, I also, you know, the Nasi Goreng at the Rasseria, speaking of Malaysian places that don't exist anymore, it was the best Nasi Goreng ever. I never had anything ever uh, approach that. And, and that story is a little uh, better because the, the family that ran it went back to Malaysia. So, you know, there you go. Uh, and well, I hope that's better. Malaysia's kind of up and down. I, I assume they made their money in Toronto and, and then went back and are living a well-deserved happy retirement somewhere on a beach. That is, speaking of stories that I'm sticking to, that's, right. that's one of them. Uh, there's a place that isn't lost to me because in theory I could find it again. I just don't know the name of the restaurant. Uh, we used to go, when we were doing Star Trek in Los Angeles, we would go to this one Mexican restaurant somewhere in Los Angeles. And when everyone who's ever been to Los Angeles is now nodding and saying, of course you can't find it, you idiot. You just described literally 10,000 buildings. It's like one of those dreams where uh-huh. there's a place you got to get back to. And, and, they had a, and they had a dish that on their menu was called Asado Puerco. Which I think means beef cooked like pork. I'm not sure what it would mean, but it was it's chicken fried steak. It's chicken fried steak. No, it was not. It was not that. But it was, but it was, um, uh, it was some kind of, uh, of uh, I think it was pork steak really. But it was cooked in some amazing sauce and some amazing regional ver- variety that I have never had anywhere. I've eaten asado puerco on many other Mexican menus in my sort of grail search for the same. Region so that I will know whose asado puerco I want. I, it, it can't be done. It's it's not food Valhalla. That's my food Leoness that just right. sort of appeared and then yes. disappeared. Right. Well, I hope you have a a, a happy fun one to to leave us on because I'm going to strike a bit of a melancholy note. Oh so, no, pie. I no pie exists in the world. Yes, that is good. I'm here to tell you uh, because my grandma Hannaford is no longer with us, oh. and, and her uh, pastry was. Uh, perfection. I've had other. I've had. You know, sometimes you'll be, if you're lucky, to be like at a wedding or a reunion that's catered by church ladies. You might get a pie that is in the same general benchmark as the same. My, my same, grandma Hannah same league, pie. yeah. If not the, the same, the, you know, yeah. The, but they bracket. would be placing tenth, right, and hers yeah. would be first. Right. And so, uh, and I think probably a lot of people have that experience of mm-hmm. you know the perfect thing. That uh, a, a relative, in this case, would be my grandma, not my mom for sure. Right, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> made that was, uh, you know, the thing that you will never uh, get back because you'll never get them back. And also, her hand with the pastry was perfect. Right. Um, here's the thing, and again, this is not an impossibility. This is a gone now, but could return. There is a liqueur uh, that is uh, from Estonia called Vanna Tallinn. And for one brief, beautiful uh, window in time, Estonia's own Anna Butina was over in America selling the living hell out of it and trying to get it into liquor stores. And I think that the liquor stores would take it on consignment or they would take one case and Estonian liqueur, I guess, doesn't move. But it's hazelnut without bad and it's cherry without cloying. It's just this amazing, great, makes the best Christmas glog. It's uh, it, it's super great uh, in um, uh, in brown liquor as well. It, it lightens it up beautifully. It makes a terrific Manhattan, and it's hard to get now. You know, again, if anyone in Estonia is listening, <laughs> and you're going to show up at a convention, so will I. <laughs> um, but uh, but Vanna Talon was 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 amazing. I mean, it's just a, a a beautiful thing that came into my liquor store. And then went away from my liquor store, and Chicago has very draconian liquor importing 
uh, a special anti-Estonian liqueur. Well, what what they have is a talk about your mobbed up. They have a very, very, very tight liquor distribution market, and you have to pay a lot of bribes to get put onto the list. Chicago has been known for liquor distribution. It has been known, but the old way was to get people more liquor. Yeah, (laughs) this is the opposite of that. Um, so it's wrong, but but Van Italen is, is is out there. I'm sure Estonians are toasting themselves with it right now and yeah. happy as clams. But uh, hey, Estonia, do you have a game convention where you <laughs> right. join inviting podcasters? That that'd be great. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and so Van Italen, I guess, is is my uh, it, it was once there. It has been taken away to a vaguely northern clime. Possibly involving fighting, and then perhaps may return again at the end of times. Well, uh, if we're talking commercial products, this reminds me of a whole other category here in Valhalla, which is discontinued candy bars. Oh, uh, so uh, the Sweet Marie, uh, which is chocolate bar and caramel and, and nougats and peanuts, uh, is a fairly recent uh, chocolate bar that has disappeared from the Canadian market. Uh, Canada. Uh, like a lot of uh, places, had a robust regional uh, candy bar market, which has slowly been just taken over by the, by the multinational big, uh, by big chocolate brands. Um, and uh, but even better was Treasures, and what this was was a chocolate bar version of a box of chocolates. So uh, you know the caramel bar, for example, right, yeah. which has the fillings in the middle. Right, yeah. Well, this had a thick, dark chocolate, quality dark chocolate, and a cheap candy bar and each one was a different filling or flavor so there was like a Turkish delight there was like a, a, a sort of a, a maple fudge cream there were I, for, I forget now even what the what the six different flavors of but I'm sure here in Valhalla uh, I can uh, uh, share a treasure bar for you and you can enjoy that well there we go uh, on the note of comradely uh, candy bar sharing a treasure bar each of us with our own square with its own filling we will blissfully close our eyes, sink back into a chocolate ecstasy, and float into the next hut through the commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? And now we find ourselves in the archaeology hut. Uh, and this is not, you know, any newfangled archaeology hut. No with, sorry, with, with Bob. The GPS tracking and the, uh, and the, the, and the, the slow brushing and the, the, slow the brushing. inch by inch and someone um, uh, sitting there and saying, well... I think we've done a good day's work. We've mapped nearly a square foot of this place. Yes. We're, we're going old school today. And, uh, gloves? 
We don't need no stinking gloves. <laughs> so yes, of course, everyone knows we are here to talk about the black sarcophagus. The black sarcophagus. Um, the extended black sarcophagus universe. Yes, the family that spends eternity in a giant coffin full of red liquid together stays, stays together. together. Uh, if they were a family at all. Right. Um, this is a, a, a delightful uh, story of, you know, three or four years from now, someone will write a paper and explain and do, do and, the work. And fun ruin it for us. Yes, fun ruin it for us. So, uh, and, and so here we have only tantalizing hints because they only just open it up. So this is a, a black granite sarcophagus found uh, near Alexandria. It was, it's two meters high, three meters long, uh, 27 metric tons, uh, which is like nearly 60,000 pounds, uh, and is believed to date from the early Ptolemaic period, uh, which is around uh, 323 BC, which uh, led the excitable to think, well, of course... Uh, it must be Alexander the Great. It must be Alexander the Great, because we know he was 10 feet tall, so mm-hmm. clearly... Right, um, and made of radiation. <laughs> yeah, but they open it up, and uh, if you've uh, seen the footage, it's like, uh, are, are you wearing gloves or anything, or <laughs> what's going on here? Gloves can't stop a mummy curse. That is true. This is known. That's right. science, Rob. Um, and so they open it up, and straight out of a universal mummy movie from the uh, 30s or 40s, they were uh, had to reel back at the horrible stench because uh, a uh, sewage, and it's not is it, it's not clear whether this is historical. Sewage, which is also an archaeological find, or, or, or modern sewage, or modern sewage, but uh, uh, there was a, a thick uh, layer of uh, of sewage, and they had to wait for the horrific odor to clear. Admittedly, and if the, if a sarcophagus was sealed, there is going to be a horrific odor in its sewage or no sewage, yeah, because rotten bodies smell bad, right? But uh, apparent, well, if, if they're properly mummified, do they still? Well, I mean, the thing is, I haven't sniffed the mummy. G- given that, given that the the dudes when we found them were a, a mass of, of skeleton bones, they were obviously not properly mummified. Right. They were either someone jambled up their mummifying. Right. Or the red liquid ate away all their mummying. Right. Or well, just like a, a bar of treasures, you don't know exactly. what you're going to get. You don't you, know what you're going to get. Yeah. And, and so the uh, the notion of um, uh, the, the, the goo uh, coming into a sarcophagus that was at least sealed enough to hold in the odor... Uh, is its own mystery, sort of. Is Did it seep in over millennia, like you say? Is it ancient goo? Or did uh, someone at some point open the sarcophagus and say... Uh, <laughs> I've got some really terrible goo. There's no treasure in here. Yeah. And then didn't get around to shutting it until goo got in. I mean, we, again, some fun ruiner will tell us the answers to these mysteries. Or do mummies, when properly prepared, sublime into red Mercury, because of course the goo is now the subject of a heated online petition for people who want to drink the mummy juice. Yes, uh, uh, also, known also known as wags. Also known as wags. Well, see, this is this is I think really this would solve so many problems. Is you just pick the guy who's you know got the most retweets for drinking the mummy juice, and you say congratulations. If, if you go back 120 years, that was straight up science. That was straight science, up science. science. Went to drink the goo, and I finally got to drink right. the goo. And uh, so much in our modern world since we started this podcast, it's just basically you know that we're living in a pulp novel like, that people know they're in a pulp novel. Uh, it's like you know Dennis Wheatley has been lightly rewritten by Michael Moorcock. So the, <laughs> the, very lightly. The, the, Secretary General of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, Mustafa Waziri, uh, in the press conference, of course, has to address 
the subject of have you been cursed? <laughs> right. um, and, and you know, implicitly, <laughs> besides and, with answering this question at literally every press conference, well, he was willing. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was willing to provide a soundbite. So his response was, "We've opened it, and thank God, the world has not fallen into darkness." <laughs> I was the first to put my whole head inside the sarcophagus, and here I stand before you. I am fine. <laughs> we know what happens right, yeah. to the guy who says that right. at the end of Act One. Yeah. Also, and, also, um, uh, I don't know, but I put my whole head, my whole head in, and I am fine. <laughs> that sounds like mummy talk to me. <laughs> in any context, mummy or not related, <laughs> yeah. I put my whole head in, and I am fine. <laughs> What <laughs> problems are about to ensue. So, what else do we know at this point? Very little. They just opened it. So, uh, we know that there's three people or three bodies. Right. Uh, they're human bodies. Yep. Mostly skeletal. Well, well, so far. So far. Mostly skeletized by right. the action of the goo or by the fact that they were not mummified. They were just tossed into a sarcophagus for unknown reasons. The sarcophagus itself is possibly the largest ever found in Egypt. It, a, a normal sarcophagus. A normal sarcophagus. I've loved my life. Um, <laughs> Is going to be closer to two tons than to 27 tons. Right. It's going to be like a tenth this weight right. and this mass. So this was a special thing, whatever it was. Right. One of the dudes had an arrow injury. Uh, they think maybe all of them then died in a battle, but we don't know if it was he was an old warrior and this is his family, or we don't know if it's three warriors that were all killed and dumped in the sarcophagus for unknown reasons. And this, I think, is where we can sort of come back in to the cursing through the back door. Right. If there are three bodies killed violently and dumped in a handy sarcophagus... Not just a handy sarcophagus, but a remarkable sarcophagus. A remarkable sarcophagus. 60,000 pounds. You know that this was a cut scene at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Was these three guys battling something that you can't really see because um, uh, they didn't want to give it away in the trailer. Yeah. And... One of them gets an uh, gets an arrow where he's like, ah, my old arrow wound, but it won't slow me down against this horror. Oh, the horror! Right. And then, and flash cut to sarcophagus being dredged out and man eagerly putting his head in. Right. Well, the, the arrow wound is it's to the head, so yeah, it, it right. might, the bat sequence might be, you see the arrow go in right, as yeah. well. Um, and we know also that there was an, uh, an alabaster bust found in it, uh, which conveniently, for making things up purposes, uh, its features are weathered beyond recognition. And again, alabaster is not a particularly strong stone. Right. So, weathered or um, eaten away by yes. goo. I don't think there's a lot of weather. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an Egyptologist, You're people. Not, or a climatologist. Well, a climatologist, but I don't think there is actually a lot of weather inside the coffin the, as, the, as, yeah, as right. we know it. So, yes, it was eaten away. Uh, by something, and therefore we're, we're never uh, meant to know it. And so, the, the, the sarcophagus doesn't look like it had a bunch of inscriptions or anything on it, which was part of the problem. Um, they, it, it was pretty blank, which in Egypt is not normal either. Normally, you've got a sarcophagus, the whole point of having a sarcophagus is to write all over it, here's the tomb of so-and-so, this is the sarcophagus of such-and-such. Don't put your whole head in, or you'll yeah. be cursed. Right. It's um, all in, that information stuff. for when you arrive in the Western lands. It's yeah. it's your shipping label. Exactly. So the possibility from a funerary standpoint is this was the inner sarcophagus to a wooden sarcophagus that had all that stuff written on it, and then it went away. Right. And the other possibility is that it was a sarcophagus that was being prepped for something else that got rapidly repurposed to hold in. Uh, timeless evil, let's say. For uh, example. For example. 
Uh, the Ptolemaic era, as you suggest, is uh, begins in 323 BC. It ends in 30 BC. They're thinking it's from the earlier part of it, which is going to be the Ptolemy of the first period, so down to about uh, 280, give or take, uh, BC. And that is too late for Nitocris. It is too late for Nephren Ka. If the giant black sarcophagus, again, is... Uh, and with, without a lot of inscriptions, they can't really do a lot of dating of it. So it might have been a giant black sarcophagus that they simply found from an earlier time. Right. Right? We don't we don't know what, what's going on. So if you want to put Nephren Ka in it, that's how. He was found by the the Ptolemaic uh, guys, and they're pulling his um, uh, sarcophagus along to show to Ptolemy, look, we found this great sarcophagus, and then someone gets an arrow in the head, coffin opens, they're slurped into it, flash forward, red goo, etc., etc. I'm fine, I put my whole head in. Right. Uh, so the uh, the, the storyline, you're not nailed down to the Ptolemaic era, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, unless you've got something really great going on in Ptolemaic era. Because one of the fun things about Ptolemy, can we close with the fun thing about Ptolemy? I think Robert? we ought to. Uh, the fun thing about Ptolemy is when Ptolemy uh, gets to be king of Alexandria, uh, which is this new city that Alexander the Great has built on the Nile Delta, uh, every Egyptian city has to have a god. That's the whole reason the cities exist, is to be the home on earth of the god. And Alexandria, going to be the new capital, but it doesn't have a god because it's a new city. So Ptolemy says, oh my god, this is terrible. I'm going to look into this. I'm your pharaoh. I'm going to take care of you. You're a Macedonian. You're no kind of pharaoh. Shut up. <laughs> Put you in a damn coffin. <laughs> look at my sarcophagus right here. Right here. Look at that. That's a pharaoh's sarcophagus. He wakes up and he says, uh, good news, everyone. The god of Alexandria came to me in a dream. And he said, send a ship to the shores of the Black Sea. Uh, it was not called the Black Sea then. I'm doing this for poetry. Say, do, do not at me. Right. Um, send a ship to the shores well, of the Black Sea. He was saying in, in hieroglyphics. Right, exactly. In, in, well, he was probably saying in Macedonian, because what does he care? And there you will find a black idol, and that's me. And I've been waiting for you jerks to build my city uh, so that I can get there. And so the Ptolemies load up a galley, and they send it off to the Black Sea, which at that time, it's, it's, not a, it's distant, but it's not remote. It's, right. it's part of civilization. And they sail up to the, 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 the northern shore, people think, of Anatolia, and they pull up into a bay, and sure enough, there's some guys living there on the bay, and they say, we're here for the Black Idol. And they say, I think, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> this idol calls you. Oh, oh, our prayers have been answered. Yeah, the idol keeps calling us jerks. You, can, yeah, you, you, can, have you can have it. Such a... Dingbat idol. And so they load the black god of the Black Sea onto their boat and sail it back to Ptolemy, who sets it up and says, this is Serapis, the new god of Alexandria. He's not new. He was just lost. And I found him, me, Ptolemy, Mm -hmm. with my dream. Yeah. And uh, historians, classicists, believe that that idol may have been a representation of Hades, uh, the god of the dead. And that he was worshipped on the shores of the Black Sea by weird, weird people. And uh, then his cult fell into desuetude because who wants to be the death worshippers? Nobody, really. It's not a good look. Uh, and so when a ship comes up, they're saying, anyone got a black idol? We really cannot come home without a black idol. They're like, yes, we yeah. do. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're, we're going to be a love cult after right. this. We're going to be the cult of sold a black idol. Yeah, we're going to worship Hermes, god of merchants and yeah. We're going to have con jobs. We're going to have colorful clothing. Colorful now. clothing. Yeah. we're going to get to go outside, Gold. 
Get some nice work gold. Oh, so much gold. Um, and, and so the notion that the Ptolemy's legitimacy rests on an unknown black idol seen in a dream, I don't know, maybe that has something to do with an unknown black sarcophagus yeah, yeah, dug up in Alexandria. Black idol. Because it seems to me that this is often what we do is, that, well, the obvious thing mm-hmm. is that it's mummies and mummies' curses and stuff. But what's really going on, but I think here it would be completely disrespectful uh, right. to make this anything other than what is implied by I was the first to put my head in the sarcophagus and I am fine. And I am fine. Right. If you, anything, you know, if you make it Shoggoths or aliens or, uh, some sort of uh, reality eruption. No, sometimes you got to go with the classics. Absolutely, and that and that uh, that was Ptolemy's message, really. Yeah, you got to go with the classics. There's a there's a classic death god, <laughs> right? Just, just waiting for a new house. <laughs> He's kind of truculent, but see previous discussion, death god, death god, and at least now he gets some sun. That's what we like exactly. Um, maybe, uh, you know, if he spends enough time under the sun in Alexandria, he'll let you wear colors. He'll, he'll, some gold. he'll, he'll mellow out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, uh, now that we've explained everything. Uh, yes, and, literally. Uh, beyond the possibility of fun ruiners to come along in three, four years and, and ruin all of our fun. Uh, I think it's time for us to... Uh, uh, put our whole head in. Put, exactly, yes. And uh, check out the Doritos in the other room. And uh, uh, maybe go and see who else is hanging around Indianapolis. So uh, we'll be back uh, next week with our wrap-up of everything that was that happened at Gen Con. And our voices will be very, very scratchy. Yes. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pellgrain Press. Asphagal. Dark Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by Dream Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Help us seal this podcast against seeping red liquid alongside such Patreon backers as Lee Carnell. Louis Sylvester. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Jason Franzella. And Jesse Lowe. Stan Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Metaphor Drift, Metaphor Drift. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>